Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Dr Judith Mackay, OBE, came to Hong Kong in 1967 to join her Scottish husband, also a doctor. More than 50 years on, Judith Mackay has made a name for herself as an ardent opponent of the tobacco industry, helping governments and organisations across Asia and other parts of the world to bring in tougher tax laws and other legislation in tobacco control laws in multiple countries. Well, we're in our Hong Kong home, which has been our home now for nearly 50 years, in the New Territories on Clearwater Bay, near the University of Science and Technology, but tucked down in a landscape garden, so we're just really fortunate that we live an almost rural life here in Hong Kong. Now, where we're sitting in your houses, there's a lovely curved window. So when was this house built? The house was built in 1957 and was owned by a Portuguese family, the Sousas. And then they left because of the riots and the disturbances. So we've lived here ever since. And in fact, I have a home office. I've converted one of the rooms into an office. So I work from home when I'm in Hong Kong. And on this, well, what I would class as autumn day, but it's a beautiful sunshine and we can hear the, the birds outside and you've got all these gorgeous gardens around. You came here in 1967, so did you really land then in the middle of a situation that, of high security in Hong Kong amid the riots? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, I came right in the middle of the riots. And in fact, my husband, who is a Scottish doctor, he had been back in the UK to do a postgraduate exam, which is where we met. And he came back first, ahead of me, three months, for two reasons. One is he wanted to just make sure that Hong Kong was in fact safe. And then secondly, I was nine months through my intern year, the one year you have to do after you graduate in order to register as a doctor. And I was nine months through that and could hardly let the hospital down by leaving. I came three months later and John thought it was safe. But no, there were bombs on the streets in cardboard boxes. We went across to Macau in the middle of all of this through Chinese waters. And the sort of almost tugboat that took us at the time was ablazoned with uh, big character posters of imperialists go home and the British consulate in Macau was daubed with big character posters. It was quite an uncertain time in Hong Kong. But I'm a fairly robust person and certainly needed to be for when I took on the tobacco industries. Now, I came out essentially as a camp follower. I came out because I married somebody, a Scottish doctor, who was in fact based in Hong Kong. Take me back to the UK and, and where you were born and uh, tell me a little bit about your family. I was born in the north of Yorkshire in 1943, just at the end of World War II, which I really don't remember, and grew up and went to school there. And my father was in the Merchant Navy. He was a sea captain. My mother was one of the first women who had gone to university in the UK, but she developed a hereditary form of deafness, which luckily I have not inherited. She developed this form of deafness. And in those days, there was no little hearing aids in the ear. There were massive battery packs that you had to carry around, like a great computer bag. And she just felt this was too much of an impediment to do what she had planned to do, which was teaching. So in fact, she never worked for economic gain. She was a homemaker. So I was brought up actually in a three-generational, very Victorian family with my grandmother, my mother, my sister and myself. Very female family, looking back on it. And then when I was 16, I went to Edinburgh University and the Red Medicine there for the next six years. 
Goodness, if you think back to if your grandmother was living with you, that she would have been very much uh, of the Victorian era. Yes, absolutely. And my mother always said that she'd sort of been born in a really in a horse and cart era, and then she'd ended up with you know computers and people landing on the moon. Her lifetime spanned an astonishing change, actually, in terms of technology and much more. Yes, but look at your also your medical career. Although it has uh, just where you're saying about your mother and this awful battery pack that she'd have had to carry mm -hmm. around, and now we're in the era of like cochlear implants. That's true, but actually, it, it's really interesting in health. I lecture on public health at the universities here, and you know somebody asked me about the importance of public health and getting jobs in the future. One of the students did, and I said, you know, I think that. The last hundred years has been dominated by the inventions of anesthesia and surgery and antibiotics. And it's completely swerved the whole emphasis on health from prevention to cure. So we have hospitals and clinics and most doctors work in the curative system. But now we realize that these are absolutely not enough to improve health. So I think there's this swing back, which I can see has started, and I think will become much more massive in the future, that unless we move upstream in public health terms and really try and stop the people falling in the river, not just rescue them with ambulances when they're in hospital, that we will never improve community health. And, you know, antibiotics are now having their problems. Surgery has its limitations. Um, and I think more and more we will be turning to prevention rather than cure in the future. But I think we have had 100 years where health has been diverted, overly diverted, into curative medicine. You were born in Yorkshire in 1943, so can you describe the house and town? I was born and brought up in Saltburn-by-the-Sea, which was a seaside town that was essentially fishing, but superimposed on it. It had become one of these Victorian sort of railway terminus seaside resort-type towns. There was a massive big hotel that was owned by the railway. There was an upper and lower promenade where... Um, the Victorian ladies took their air and then the children played on the sandbanks and the sea and the cliffs. It was a lovely place. It was just south of Middlesbrough, which, of course, only about 11 miles away, but really industrial. Are you the oldest or the youngest in terms of your sister? I'm the younger. She's eight years older than I am. So my mother often said she had two only children because we had such a gap between, in fact, nine years. So the gap was nine years between bringing us both up. And what did your sister go on to do? Well, my sister went to a private school, to Harrogate College, and in those days, girls' schools turned out young ladies mm. to be adept at social functions and to marry well. And my mother always felt that Harrogate College was not good for my sister. She did go on and did a legal secretarial course and, in fact, came top in Britain with the legal secretarial course. But my mother felt that this had not been, herself, of course, a university graduate. She just felt this had not served my sister well, and she regretted it her whole life, making that decision. So I went to the local grammar school, which was in Redcar, just a few miles away. So I came out of a grammar school background. So you arrive here following your husband and his job, but how did you meet him? Was that at medical college? or? No, I was doing my intern year in the then city hospital in Edinburgh. It's now been pulled down. But I was doing my, my six months of internal medicine in the city hospital, and he came back as a postgraduate student to do a postgraduate exam and was attached to the hospital. So, in fact, we met in the TB ward, actually, in Edinburgh. That's how we met. 
and then he got the job in Hong Kong. How, do you remember how you initially reacted to the idea of coming to Hong Kong? Well, he had already been in Hong Kong for four years, so this was his first long leave back to do the exam. So, I mean, it was where he was working, so in a sense it wasn't the two of us coming out to start a new life. I was really coming out to join him. We wanted to see how Hong Kong would fare with the Cultural Revolution, and I think a lot of people do forget just how problematic Hong Kong was during the riots until Chu and I actually put a stop to it and said we'll take back Hong Kong when the time is right. And then things did settle down after that and the police force held solid and the civil service did and, you know, things got back on track. But there was no certainty of that when I came out. So you follow your husband out here and then what was your initial work here? My initial statement was, and especially having done my one year in hospital, was that I was going to lie on a beach. I was never going to work again. And that lasted for all of about two weeks. And then I decided that if I were to work, it would be in the public sector, not the private sector. And for that, I would need Cantonese. So I did a nine-month course of Cantonese and then started working in a research job. It was in the university paediatric unit, and I worked there for three years. And it was really quite interesting, and it had a very practical outcome in that we were looking at growth and development in Chinese children because Chinese children were doing very well for the first year. Their growth was virtually the same as Western children. All their milestones were virtually the same as Western children, and then they really dropped off. So this study was just looking to see why was this happening, and the answer, in fact, was diet. Milk was being sort of withdrawn at the age of about 12 months, but there was no alternative source of protein being introduced. And when this was realised, and this, we followed these children for 18 years, and I worked with the project for about three years, when this was realised, then the government did a huge amount of work on trying to make sure that at the age of 12 months, um, Chinese children had a proper replacement source of protein for milk. And, of course, now, you know, when I came, I was taller than, I think, virtually every Chinese person in Hong Kong. And now I'm dwarfed on the MTR by the fact that that nutrition, that early nutrition, which is so important, um, that early nutrition has obviously paid huge dividends. So where were you carrying out this study? Well, it was based in the Yamati Polyclinic, and not in, not in Queen Mary. It was based in the Yamati Polyclinic. So about 70% of our work we did in the clinic itself. The children would come to us with their parents. And then a lot of the time for children, because we were very determined to try and keep that cohort of children going. So about a quarter of the time we would go out to the children's homes, which included going into the ward city. Um, people there knew what we were doing and we never had any problems at all going into the ward city to look after their children. They realised that what we were doing was for the good of children in Hong Kong, so that was actually never a problem at all. And then the results came out fairly quickly, long before the 18 years. I mean, it was really quite apparent within the first sort of three or four years that this was the problem. I never got to see the walled city. I came uh, within months of me arriving here. It had been taken down. Can you describe it to me? Oh, it was crowded, gloomy, very sort of narrow little streets, pretty grubby. I think it could have been quite intimidating. Certainly as a Westerner, I don't think I would have gone in on my own. 
but I went in with the two nurses from the clinic. We used to go as a sort of trio. And, you know, once it was known what you were doing there and the people realised that this was for their benefit, there really wasn't a problem. And, in fact, I subsequently worked in the United Christian Hospital in Kuntong and our community nurses used to go there too. And, again, there was never a problem when you were going in under those circumstances. At the Kuntong Clinic, you, in fact, had some patients coming in barefoot. We did. It was in the very early days. In 1976, I started working in the United Christian Hospital. And in those days, the population there was really poor. And we had a lot of patients coming in barefoot. Many of them were illiterate with a huge number of sort of social problems. And the only hospital really to serve this big population of three quarters of a million So it was very essential medicine at the time and very much based on some of the infectious diseases such as TB, but increasingly and emergingly so were the non-communicable diseases beginning to kick in of chronic obstructive airways disease, of lung cancer from the smoking and heart disease and so on. So it was a transitional period but dealing with very, very poor people. And so some of the key things that they would have been suffering from... Well, they were suffering particularly from TB. The infectious diseases in the 60s, 70s, 80s were all beginning to be controlled. I mean, we still, of course, have TB today, but nothing like we did in those days. But then this sort of rolling epidemic of the lifestyle diseases was certainly beginning to kick in. How do you treat TB? The traditional mode now, in the early days, you would treat it with rest and with diet and with sunshine. Then, of course, came the drugs. What one found was that treating it with one drug was not enough. You got resistance almost immediately, very quickly. So you treated it with a three-drug combination and the patients increasingly less and less time. We started treating people for 18 months, then it was 12 months, then it was 6 months, and now they even do shorter course treatment than that. So it's essentially drug treatment. But I think we mustn't forget that the biggest advances in the improvement of TB were not actually related to those drugs. They came when diet improved. It was as simple as that. When the milk was cleaned of TB, it was coming in through the milk. And once the milk was pasteurized, these were the things that were actually public health measures rather than the drugs. But the drugs did, in fact, help. They, of course they do, yes. So you'd be working at these clinics, but were you then also involved in organisations that were... Uh, attempting to improve public health? Well, when I first came out here, I did a job uh, before the ones I've just described for about a year as a civilian medical practitioner in the Kaitak Army Clinic. And I got paid 75% of a man's pay because that was the Hong Kong government regulations. So it applied to the universities, it applied to people like myself who were working as civilians with a civilian in the armed forces. And I couldn't believe it. And in those days, this is 1967, in fact, Hong Kong was blacklisted by the, in the British Medical Journal. There was a black box around Hong Kong saying, if you're thinking of applying for a job in Hong Kong, you know, be aware that it's 75% of a man's pay. And the same was for South Africa, because they paid blacks less than they paid whites. So these were the two places that in the 70s were, 60s and early 70s, were blacklisted in the British Medical Journal. And I think probably that was a turning point in my life in terms of outrage and in terms of, in in a sense, becoming a feminist because I was doing the same job as a male doctor was doing. It just seemed to me very wrong indeed. 
And there was such a fuss about it that um, the medical people actually got parity of pay first, followed by the rest of the civil service in the early 1970s. And Anson Chan and others formed an organization called the Association of Female Senior Government Officers. And uh, I became a consultant, uh, an honorary advisor to the group in terms of helping them get firstly get equal pay but then secondly get equal terms of service like the widows and orphans fund and all of those kinds of things that were very very unequal with women so i think it for me that was the seeds of becoming a very strong feminist that i am to this day i think the seeds of that were certainly sown by the hong kong government i have them to thank for becoming a feminist dr judith mckay would then leave hospital medicine to begin working in public health in 1984 she says women's issues was part of that decision she'd go on to chair the committee for the founding of harmony house the first refuge for women who had suffered domestic abuse she also carried out the first study on abused women in asia she would work with Moirin Tilbrook and the late broadcaster Aileen Bridgewater to help abused women and create a rape crisis counselling service. But it would be the reaction to articles she wrote for the South China Morning Post on tobacco that would spur her to leave a paid job and to become involved in tobacco control across Asia. My interest in women's health led me to realise that although in those days women's health was very gynaecologically defined, that actually more women were dying from tobacco than from every method of birth control combined. So I got very much involved with tobacco and the tobacco industry were really beginning to target women in Asia and in Hong Kong in particular with all these slogans of you've come a long way baby, you're your own woman, you know, you, you're, you don't need to listen to you know, what your parents tell you, you're independent. So they were targeting women. And then the third thing that really crunched me into leaving curative medicine was that um, I was writing a series of articles for the South China Morning Post, a three-year series on women of about 1,500 words a week. And, I, you know, I did the menopause, I did cancer, I did all manner of things. And then I did four on tobacco, and two of them were on the harmfulness of tobacco. The third one was banning advertising. And in those days in Hong Kong, every single slot on TV had a tobacco advertisement. Buildings 20 stories high carried massive advertisements right down the side of them. You simply couldn't get away from it. The dress shops would all have Philip Morris things inside them and free cigarettes. It was unbelievable in those days. So, so I, it, everybody smoked inside as well? Oh, and everybody smoked everywhere, in fact, in those days. We were just really beginning to turn to the first laws that came in in 1982, but it was about that time. So the third one I wrote on banning advertising, and the heavens descended on me from British American Tobacco. They published a report saying that I was unrepresentative, unaccountable, um, all of this, whereas they, the tobacco industry, were the best source of information on tobacco that was needed in Hong Kong. And what's more, it had never been proved that smoking, particularly secondhand smoke, was dangerous. That was, again, my second moment of outrage. And so I just moved into tobacco control. And I've often said I have BAT to thank for that, because if they hadn't really attacked me in an almost a red guard denunciation, I would probably be, I don't know, working in a chest unit or doing renal surgery or something to this day. You're saying that in 1982, the first legislation came in in Hong Kong. What was that? 
Well, it was the early days of trying to restrict advertising, trying to get smoke-free areas, trying to put a warning on the health packs. Now, the warning was just 10%, and it also had to go on the advertising. In terms of the warnings, do you think that they work? Oh, we know they work. We've, uh, I mean, there's lots of, lots of studies that have actually shown that smokers notice them. They are more reluctant to take a cigarette on the spot. They think more about quitting. It encourages them to quit, or they have more quit attempts. No, we actually know. We actually have done studies in most countries in the world, so tobacco control is now very evidence-based. The main thing is tax. And it surprises people that because it's a fiscal measure. But if you tax cigarettes above affordability to children, they don't smoke. And your brain, everybody's brain starts maturing when they're about 16, right at the back, at the occipital lobe at the back, and progressively matures till it gets to the frontal lobe at about 23. And the frontal lobe is where you start making your life's decisions. You start making your mature decisions in life when you're about 23 years old. So this is why nobody starts smoking after 23. We haven't found a country in the world where the average age of starting smoking is above 20. It's all under 20. So this is why we, in terms of prevention, helping smokers quit is another issue. But in terms of prevention of children, we have to deal really with about eight to the age of 20. That's why it's so important. And tax is surprising to many people, but tax is the issue that will prevent you smoking. It's not health education in schools. It's not banning sales to minors. They always find a way around it to buy the cigarettes. It's actually a fiscal measure. You felt so angry about the whole issue of the tobacco industry. I mean, you took them on, but your campaign for more than three decades was, was an unpaid one. It was, because in those days there was basically only myself in Asia who was really working amongst the different countries in Asia. There was no career structure. There was no job, really, to actually employ me. So I worked for more than two decades, really, for no pay at all. Um, I was the first executive director of the Council of Smoking and Health between 1987 and 1989 for two years to get it up and running. But apart from that brief period, I basically worked for no pay. That's true. What are the smoking rates in Hong Kong? Are there fewer younger people taking it up? The whole anti-smoking campaign in Hong Kong has actually been massively effective. Uh, we, along with Singapore and Japan, have halved our male prevalence rates. It's gone right down to about 10.5% now of the adult population. That's not including children. It would be even lower. And that makes us about the lowest jurisdiction in the world. Having said that, of course, it's always more to do. There's no room for complacency. I mean, women's smoking here is a good example of that, that there hasn't been an increase in women's smoking. We predicted there would be by now, but it hasn't happened. But we really need to be very vigilant about um, health, health education um, that includes women. So that Where's, Where do women stand in terms of percentage that smoke? Oh, it's where, it, throughout Asia now it's below 5%. It's still very, very low. And in fact, if you had to do one thing in Asia, or one thing in the world, in true preventive health that would have the biggest effect, it would be stopping women in Asia starting smoking, mm -hmm. actually. You'd save thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives if you could prevent their rates going up to what the male rates did. And so you had two sons? We, ha have, we have two sons, yes. And are they doctors? Uh, the elder one is a doctor, the younger one's an environmental scientist, yes. And have they remained in Hong Kong? 
Um, they were born and brought up here. They come back every year, but one is living in Edinburgh now and one is living in Cambridge. I'm also very thankful that neither of them ever smoked because that would have been a bit difficult for me. In fact, that was the very conversation I had with them. Two things happened was I said to them, you know, uh, whether you smoke, I said you've had all education, you know, all about smoking, you know, more than probably any other children your age about smoking. And I said, but whether you smoke or not, it's your call, it's your choice, it's up to you. I said, um, you know, the only thing I can say it would be quite difficult for me if you actually started smoking. That's all I can say. But it's your co- it's your choice. So we're in the say mid 1980s now in terms of your career so part of it was i mean you must have been enormously busy your mother of two sons uh when were they born actually they were born in 69 and 70 so it was really only when they went back to school that i started working i was working in hong kong but when they went back to school i started working around asia also because i was being inundated with requests from countries to basically come and help them so In those early days, I was visiting, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos when they were practically just post-war. I mean, it was it was uh, unusual and certainly all going all over China Um, to do what? Well, to work with principally the governments, but also non-governmental associations on tobacco control. So I arrived, for example, in Mongolia in 1990, the very, very day that the Russians were leaving having occupied Mongolia since the 1911s, 1917, I think it was. So you arrived when? Well, I arrived in 1990 in Mongolia, and the airport was full of all the Russians leaving, and some galloping their horses back to Russia, some leaving by air. And on TV was the convening of a tiny, tiny little box TV about 12 inches across in the government guest house where I was staying. This tiny little TV was actually showing Parliament, um, having its first ever sort of session. So I went to Mongolia and worked with the government and actually at their request, drafted them a tobacco control law. And this came into effect almost immediately. And I think, as I said, the the reason I was going to all these countries in those early days, just as I've been three times to North Korea recently, but the time I was going to all these countries in the early days was to try and get there before the tobacco industry got there. And at a time when it was much easier to get laws passed, like in Mongolia, they got a very comprehensive law um, that actually went fully through in 1992 and even in Mongolia it would be more difficult now it is more difficult with green papers and white papers and debate and the tobacco industry is now very organized on a global level to obstruct they don't go after individuals like myself because now there are many many it's become mainstream public health they, inst- they instead, they attack governments and challenge legislation. When you say you wanted to get there before the tobacco industry did, was that because the tobacco industry would come in with money for advertising or offer sweetness to the government, or do you mean that nobody was smoking in these countries? Oh, no, they were smoking, the men in particular. Um, the, the, the tobacco company in those countries in those days were national monopolies. And in general, they were rather inefficient, bureaucratic government departments. They didn't deny the health evidence. They didn't obstruct legislation. Um, 44 countries still do have monopolies, and they have become much more, like in China, much more like the transnational commercial companies now. They do. They try and obstruct legislation and delay it and so on. But in those days, the monopolies were 
sort of relatively unsophisticated. They didn't, for example, if you were trying to advise a government to get a smoke-free law in place or to ban advertising on TV, they didn't really oppose it with the vehemence that they do today. Even the monopolies oppose it now. So there was a window of opportunity right through the 80s and the early 90s, I would say, to visit countries and to really help them sort of get up and running. And I think the tobacco industry had said it themselves. They said it in the way back in the 80s and 90s. Um, they would have quotes like, um, you know, what is it we want? We want Asia because of the huge populations, the big male smoking rates who could be converted to the Marlboro cigarettes and the very low smoking rates in women who could be persuaded to smoke. And then they suddenly found they were getting to countries and there was laws in place. So looking now across Asia, I mean, the mainland China still has huge problems. Oh, one in every three cigarettes smoked in the world is smoked in China. You can't ignore China. One in every three cigarettes is grown, a third of the tobacco is grown. The Chinese government, in fact, is the biggest tobacco company in the world. It's much bigger than British American Tobacco and Philip Morris and JTI because mostly people in China smoke the Chinese cigarettes. So uh, there are challenges with a monopoly that are very similar and yet a little bit different. It's a government department which makes it a bit different from dealing with the big, uh, the big transnational commercial companies. But China cannot be ignored because it just simply is a home to the, most of the world's smokers. My thanks to Dr Judith Mackay. Now a grandmother and 75, Dr Judith Mackay sent me photos last week of her climbing the rigging of a tall ship out of Bali. Her parents lived to a ripe age, she says, and she predicts she'll still be working at 100. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.